Hi there. In this talk, we're going to look at the next four verses in Matthew 5, uh, which are like the main thesis statement for the Sermon on the Mount. And they give us a summary of the radical righteousness that followers of Jesus are being called to in his kingdom. And they create quite a dilemma which is why it's crucial that we interpret them correctly because wrong interpretations have proved disastrous for the church. So let's just read them now. It's from Matthew 5 verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now just let that sink in for a moment. Look at those words again. Jesus said, unless your righteousness, which as we see in the previous verse has to do with keeping the commandments of the law, unless your righteousness, he says, exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Those words would have shocked the crowd who were listening to Jesus because no one was more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes were the scholars and teachers of the law. The Pharisees were a religious sect within Judaism who were devoted to keeping the law and preserving the oral traditions of their people. And their righteousness far exceeded that of ordinary people. They sought to keep every one of the 248 commandments and the 365 prohibitions. As it says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, they were the extra super holy people. And Jesus was saying that the righteousness of his followers was to be greater than theirs. So how is that possible? How can our righteousness surpass theirs? And how on earth can it be a condition for entering the kingdom of heaven? I mean, surely no one will get in. That's the dilemma that this passage presents us with. Now, I'm sure some might be thinking, well, you know, that's easily solved. Because didn't Jesus give us his righteousness as a gift? Isn't that what the apostle Paul said? Paul, who had been a Pharisee himself, and says in Philippians 3, that when it came to righteousness under the law, he was faultless. And yet, he said, it was worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, he said, but that which comes from God through faith in Christ. It's a gift of his grace. So does that solve our dilemma? Well, it doesn't explain why Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of his commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then later on in Matthew 5, he gives six examples of what righteousness looks like in practice. So clearly, he's expecting his followers to actually live righteously in a way that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. So again, how is that possible? Let's go back to the beginning of the passage. 
In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's quite likely that Jesus was responding here to questions being raised by his ministry. We see at the beginning of Mark's Gospel how Jesus taught the people on the Sabbath, and they were astonished by his authority, and yet he broke the Sabbath rules by healing the sick. What's this, they said. I'm sure they were wondering why he was disregarding their laws. I mean, had he come to abolish them? So Jesus responds here by saying, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, the law and the prophets is really speaking about the entire Old Testament. There was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, which included the rest of the Jewish scriptures. But it was essentially the story of God's people and was full of teaching, commandments and prophecy to help God's people to walk in relationship with him and remain distinct from all the other nations. And Jesus was saying, I haven't come to do away with any of that. I'm not abolishing it. I'm not even relaxing it. I'm not disregarding any of it, not one iota. Rather, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to complete the story. It all finds its fulfillment in me. That's what he was saying. Because the whole of the Old Testament, you see, acted like a signpost pointing to Jesus. He was the destination. A lot of what we see in the Old Testament is like shadows, and Jesus is the substance. He is the fulfillment of it all. Let me just give you some examples. First, and most obviously, he fulfilled many predictive prophecies. That's very clear when you read the first chapters of Matthew. Like in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, where it says that Jesus' parents went to live in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets would be fulfilled. Then later, Jesus left Nazareth to live in Galilee so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In fact, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus, many of them outside of his control. And then there were all the kind of shadows and types in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. There was the whole sacrificial system with all the different laws for the sacrifices, for the priesthood and the temple. But it was foreshadowing what was to come because it all found its fulfillment in Jesus. As we see in the letter to the Hebrews, he was the perfect once and for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world. He is our great high priest forever. And he is the foundation stone of a new living temple. He is the one that it's all pointing to. He is the fulfillment. He's the final Moses leading his people in the final exodus to the promised land. Bible commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount say that when Jesus ascended a mountain to teach the people and call them to this radical righteousness, it was clearly meant to compare him to Moses, the great lawgiver, who also ascended a mountain and taught the gathered people. And so here was Jesus, the final arbiter of God's law, telling us that he is the greater Moses, the fulfillment of the law. You see, Jesus was bringing to completion all that God had begun to do in ancient times. Another way that Jesus fulfilled the law is that he perfectly kept all of its commands, something that no one else has been able to do. As it says in the scriptures of mankind, that no one is righteous, not even one, not even the Pharisees and scribes, only Jesus. But of course that raises a question. 
What about the rules that he himself broke on the Sabbath day? The thing was, Jesus wasn't disregarding the Sabbath law, but rather the interpretation of the law that the scribes and Pharisees had given it. You see, in order to protect their law and traditions, they created new laws around the original ones to kind of fence them in, and also to prevent God's people from breaking God's original commands. So God had commanded them to observe the Sabbath day. But the scribes and Pharisees took it upon themselves to decide what specific actions constituted breaking the Sabbath. You know, what was permitted and what was prohibited. From what I understand, it was actually intended to make it easier to obey God's commands. They wanted to make the law less demanding by making this list of things that were permitted. But it was this relaxing of God's law that Jesus was speaking against when he said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The problem was that by creating all of these rules and regulations, they had obscured the true intention of God's law. It's like Christians who start dating and they might ask, you know, what's permissible? I've had people ask me that, you know, and what they're actually asking is, how close can I get to the fire and not be burned? But of course, it's the wrong question because it comes from a wrong heart. And that's what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He was getting people back to the heart of things. You see, when Jesus was talking about the law and the prophets, he was talking about the whole story of God's covenant with his people. The commandments that God gave them were in the context of relationship. It's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. You see, it's primarily about relationship, not rules. But by adding all these layers of rules and regulations, the scribes and Pharisees had obscured the original intent of the law, which had the effects of separating people from God rather than bringing them near. It created a, a false standard of righteousness based on external behavior, and it placed an impossible burden upon the people. You know, sadly, there are many churches today who do the same thing, where they add their own rules to scripture of what is permissible and what is not permissible. And that kind of legalism breeds judgmentalism, fear and hypocrisy, which brings death to any church. So, Jesus had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He wasn't being lax in his attitude to the law when he healed on the Sabbath. Rather, he was disregarding the distorted version of the law that the religious leaders had created. But what did he mean then when he said, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished? Does that mean that every single command in the Old Testament still applies to us? That we can't eat bacon? You know, no more lobster? No rare steak until the end of the age? And what about mixing fabrics? Will I have to throw my Ben Sherman cotton and polyester shirts away? And what about the sacrificial laws? Didn't we just say that Jesus fulfilled them all? Then why did he say that not one iota of the law, not even the smallest Hebrew dot will pass away until heaven and earth pass away? which can only be talking about the end of this present age. What does it all mean? 
You know, there's a similar verse at the end of Matthew's Gospel that helps shed some light on this, where Jesus talks about those same events at the end of the age when he will return. And in Matthew 24, verse 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, he seems to be saying that the law will pass away, but only when heaven and earth as we know it passes away and all is accomplished. And in Matthew 24, he again affirms that heaven and earth will pass away, but he says, my words will not pass away. So he's saying that the law is temporary, but his words are forever. And what's more, in these uh, parallel verses, the teaching of the law and the prophets have been replaced by the teaching of Jesus. My words, he says. And there's a number of times in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to the crowd, you have heard that it was said, you know, you shall not murder or uh, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you this, it's what Jesus says that matters now. It's his words that count. He wasn't abolishing the law, rather what the law was intended for was being fulfilled in him. So, what was the law intended for? What was it intended to produce in God's people? Righteousness. In this passage, Jesus equates keeping God's commands with righteousness, which of course brings us back to our original question. How can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Because as we'll see another time, Jesus certainly isn't relaxing the standard of righteousness. You know, when he says, but I say to you, he was actually calling his followers to an even more radical righteousness. And so to understand what that means, we need to first understand this word righteousness. The righteousness that the Pharisees practiced was external. It was uh, an outward obedience to the law. And on this, they excelled, as we've seen, and they paraded it before others. They were self-righteous. But God was looking for something much deeper and purer, a righteousness of the heart, which is far more radical than just a rigid conformity to the letter of the law. Because the righteousness that pleases God is inward. It has to do with our heart motives. It's why the Bible says God looks upon the heart. Right? It's this heart's righteousness, which is a wholehearted devotion to God, loving God with all our hearts, that's what results in right living. But it's what the Israelites failed to do again and again and again. It's why God would say to them things like, I hate your sacrifices. But hang on, didn't God command the sacrifices in the first place? Yes, but as he says in Hosea 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. You see, their sacrifices didn't come from a heart devoted to God. Or look at what God says of his people in Isaiah 58. In verse 2, he says, They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. Now, why did God say that? Clearly, he wasn't impressed with their actions. So why? Well, if you read Isaiah 58, you'll see his people were saying to God, Look, we fasted, didn't we? then why don't you respond? And God says to them, yes, you fast, 
but your hearts are wrong. You indulge yourselves, you oppress your workers, and you quarrel and fight. I'll tell you what kind of fast I'm interested in. How about showing mercy to the poor and the oppressed and the hungry? Then your righteousness will go before you and your lights will break forth like the dawn. You see, their hearts were wrong and how they treated one another was evidence of that. God might well say to his people today, look, you know, you go to church on Sundays, you tithe, you sing songs of praise, you take communion, you look good on the outside, but then you go and indulge yourselves. You ignore the needs of others or treat people badly. It's really no different. It's what the Pharisees were doing too, which is why Jesus called them hypocrites. You see, for God, righteousness has to do with the heart. It's having a heart devoted to him and having a heart that is like his. We see that later in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Right? They were doing it for the praise of men. But he says, when you give to the needy, let it be in secret. He goes on to say, do it in secret where only your Father in heaven will see it. So can you see here that Jesus is equating righteousness with giving to the needy, with being merciful, and doing it as an act of devotion to God? You see, it's a heart attitude, as we saw in the Beatitudes. It's having the heart of God. So... The righteousness that God is looking for is essentially loving God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind and loving our neighbour as ourself. As Jesus says later in Matthew 22, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All of God's commandments are summed up in that twofold commandment. It's what the scribes and Pharisees failed to do as God's people had all through their history. So when Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't demanding greater obedience, but a deeper obedience, a righteousness of the heart. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, the rest of Matthew 5 gives us practical examples of this deeper righteousness. And it ends with, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But how is that possible, we ask? How can we live as God intends when his people had failed to do so for centuries? You know, laws and rules, they tell you what's right and wrong, but they have no power to change you. What we need is a change of heart. And thankfully, as we saw in the Beatitudes, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel foresaw God's gracious solution, that God had promised to give his people a new heart that instead of writing his commandments on tablets of stone, he would write them on our hearts. It would be internalized. He would put his own spirit in us to enable this to happen, to empower us to walk in his ways, to walk in love. It's one of the chief blessings of the new age and the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, it's the only way that we can enter the kingdom of heaven is by being born again, born of the Spirit. And so for us, the most important way that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets 
was by sending the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us so that we might know the love of God poured into our hearts so that we might truly love God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that is the radical righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So let me ask you, have you been born again? Have you experienced this heart transformation? Once the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, it's an ongoing process as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be like Jesus. Can I encourage you today, if you haven't already, to turn away from all sin and selfishness, as well as from self-righteousness, and turn to Jesus Christ. Receive his righteousness and a changed heart. Ask him to come and dwell in you today. If you're truly wanting that, then why not pray with me now? Just a simple prayer. In fact, it's something that we could all pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me enough to come and die for me. Please forgive me for everything that I've done wrong and for trying to live without you. I invite you to come into my heart, to be my Lord and Saviour. Come and reign in me. Fill me with your love and your life and help me to become a person who is truly loving like you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Here are some questions for discussion in small groups. First of all, in what ways was this talk a help or encouragement to you? Secondly, have you experienced or practiced legalism, living like the Pharisees? What effect did it have on your life or on those around you? Thirdly, how might you love God and others more? Spend some time praying for one another.